beginning with someone I take special delight in introducing, because once upon a time, way back in the last century, when Stephen Kotkin was a graduate student at UC Berkeley, he once served as a TA for the survey course in modern history, a survey course taught by Walter McDougall. <laughs> Today, Steve Kotkin is the Berkeley Professor of History and Inter International Affairs at a small school up the road from here known as Princeton University. He's also the director of the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies. He co-directs the program in, in the history and practice of diplomacy and is a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Kotkin is the author, contributor, and or the editor of about a dozen books, including Magnetic Mountain, Stalinism as a Civilization, Steel Town, USSR, Soviet Society in the Gorbachev Era, Uncivil Society, 1989 and the Implosion of the Communist Establishment, and a, a, a particularly elegant book, uh, which I assigned to my seminar on the rise and fall of the great powers, Armageddon Averted, the Soviet Collapse, 1970 to 2000. But most of all, Kotkin is the author of Stalin, Volume 1, Paradoxes of Power, 1878 to 1928, with two more volumes to follow, the next of which, I'm, Alan tells me, is due out on Halloween, just a few weeks from now. Kotkin is the definitive biographer, therefore, of the Soviet dictator, and indeed his first volume uh, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. But somehow this youthful scholar, youthful compared to me, where are you, Steve? Oh, there you are. Uh, this youthful scholar and educator has also found time to establish Princeton's Global History Initiative. He's co-founded a series of books on Northeast Asia, and he, uh, he directs the program in Russian and Eurasian Studies and has served as Vice Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School. <sighs> wow. We couldn't imagine a person more qualified to open this conference on the identity and world importance of Eurasia, and we are thrilled he was willing and able to do so. Please join me in welcoming Professor Steve Kotkin. Thank you. Thank you, Good morning, everyone. I thank FPRI for the honor of the invitation. It's uh, a fantastic organization, as you know, its mission, its values, which I share. Um, I was uh, Walter McDougall's TA in the Plato to NATO class, as it used to be called. <laughs> to call it now, uh, Plato to NATO is almost a thought crime. Yeah. <laughs> because because it seems to belittle others, but uh, that's what it was called back then informally. And uh, strangely enough, the course was about values. It was about the values of Western civilization. And for many of the other TAs, and there were probably a, almost a dozen of us, it was a very large class at Berkeley, the idea that you would teach a class and try to teach values was difficult to assimilate. Most of those TAs thought that Walter Mondale was the Republican candidate. <laughs> That's how far to the left they were. <laughs> yes, I'm serious. Yes. 
Anyway, it was quite an experience for me, and I'm still grateful to this day. And it feels a little weird to be the one on the stage rather than to have uh, Walter be the one on the stage, which was how it was back then in the Plato and NATO. So today, believe it or not, I'm going to uh, steal from Walter and give a lecture which is rooted in a sense of values, just as he did. That was already 35 years ago, I think, that class. I've been at Princeton for 29 years. I arrived in September 1989 to teach my first class on communism, and they pulled the wall down in November. <laughs> yeah, that's the feeling I had. Huh, what does this mean? You know the old joke about how your notes are yellow and you have to rip them up? It was my first class. I didn't have any notes yet. <laughs> they weren't yellow. They weren't any color. Yeah, so uh, that was quite the experience. Good timing, as they say. Anyway, so today I want to talk a little bit about Eurasia, and I want to make three large points and then have a what I hope is a discussion with you, meaning rather than give a detailed lecture, I'm going to give three bullet points, illustrate them a little bit, and see if we can't then interact what might be useful for you. My son is in high school, and uh, he is taking AP World History. He's a sophomore in high school in New York City. I myself am a co-author of a World History textbook, <laughs> and so I look at his material. It's quite interesting. He's got a fantastic teacher. And I try not to get too close to him on this because it's enough already that I'm living in the same house with him, <laughs> let alone that I'm going to look over his shoulder. But I get what it is that you guys do, and I appreciate it very much. So let's see if I can help a little bit, add some value in this enterprise. So the first thing about Eurasia is it seems to be a geographic term. Seems to be geographic. That is to say, uh, it's the area between Europe and Asia or the area that connects Europe and Asia. Well, yeah, except that you know the Europeans invented the concept of continent, and of course, a continent, by European definition, is, as you know, a body of land surrounded on all sides by water, and of course, that's not true of Europe. And it's also not true of Asia, but it is true of Eurasia. So ironically enough, Eurasia fits the definition of continent in a way that Europe and Asia don't fit the definition of continent. But we don't tend to think of Eurasia as a continent or as an entity unto itself. We instead think about Europe and Asia as distinct civilizations that have some meeting point somewhere in the middle, and there have been an argument over the centuries about where is the boundary between Europe and Asia. Is it the Ural Mountains, right, which uh, some people have argued is the case, that's the boundary? Is it instead where Russian civilization begins? In other words, there's a kind of European civilization and then there's a Russian civilization. And I could go on with other definitions of boundary, or is there no boundary at all, which some people have argued. Anyway, so we have this geographic concept, but the geographic concept is actually difficult. It doesn't really work. 
especially because over the years we've assigned a high value to European civilization or to Europe, not just in geographic terms, but in values terms. And so anything which is not Europe is somehow less lesser than Europe in civilization or values terms. And so therefore the struggle or the fight over the European-Asian boundary, should there be one, is really a fight over you know who it counts in civilizational terms or who's higher on the hierarchy. So we don't need to fight that fight ourselves. We don't need to get involved in that, take sides in that. We just need to be aware that that is what's happening. So the geographic conversation, which seems neutral, is actually not neutral. It's all political and values laden. The Chinese are not worried about whether they're European or not. They don't really use the term Eurasia. They're not trying to compare themselves to Europe or try to be above Europe or part of Europe because they're China. They have their own classical traditions. They have their own ancient lineage and trajectory. They don't need Rome or Greece, in other words, because they have the Tang Dynasty and everything else you know. Then if you look at um, some of the other options, there is a Russian Eurasia or a Soviet Eurasia. right? That is to say those lands controlled either from St. Petersburg in the Tsarist period or from Moscow in the Soviet period. That leaves out a lot of stuff. It leaves out the Iranian story. It leaves out the Ottoman story. And it leaves out the Chinese story, all of which you'll be hearing about during the course of these couple of days. So the, the, the Eurasia category is one in which you can see the Chinese are not as worried about precisely because they don't have this complex about whether they belong to Europe or not. Now Russia is the hinge here because Russia is European, but it's not Western. Because Western is a values and institutional concept, not a geographical concept. Japan is not European, but it is Western. It's Western in values and institutions. And we have this conflation, which gives us a a lot of confusion and difficulty, between European and Western. People arguing, you know, that the Russians are not really West, not really European, or that they are European, and this battle, right? Well, in fact, they, the Russians are definitely European. There's no question about that. Not only, but they are European. But that doesn't mean they're Western, because Western is about what kind of institutions you have. Rule of law, right? protection of private property and civil liberties, freedom of expression, freedom of movement, all the things that EU members today are supposed to have. Russia doesn't have those things. That's why it's not Western. This is not a prejudice against Russia. This is a description. Okay. So a little bit of self-consciousness about the terminology. Even the geographical stuff, as I said, is not neutral. So that's my point number one. Once again, I'm going to do three bullet points and then we're going to have a conversation on whatever issues you think I failed to clarify or you'd like more information on.
Now, there are obviously rival conceptions of Eurasia at play here in the geographic sense. Right? Today's Turkey has an understanding of Eurasia, which has to do with the glories of the Ottoman past and the potential glories of Turkey today and going forward. They don't see this place as Russian or Soviet. Right? They see this place, Eurasia, this geographic term, as part of a Turkish or Ottoman past. The Iranians as well. Now, once again, the Chinese don't use the expression, but they're the ones building an actual Eurasia, a grand Eurasia of China. They have this one belt, one road initiative that you've heard about, which involves nearly 100 countries on paper and is about building infrastructure and connecting this vast landmass, you know, all the way to the channel, connecting all of that to China through oil and gas pipelines, through roads, through railroads especially, ports. Right? And so the Chinese are less obsessed with Eurasia because for them the cultural stuff, they have their own. But in fact, in practical terms, they're the ones building a grand Eurasia right now. Now the One Belt, One Road initiative is an economic boondoggle. Most authoritarian regimes uh, will uh, uh, not fully adhere to market principles when they invest capital or they allocate capital. And so you get a political allocation of capital which doesn't always work well in the end because the stuff is not built or it's not built properly or it's not built in a cost-effective fashion. And that comes back to bite you, the lack of cost-effectiveness. right? Bridges to nowhere, we all know that phenomenon. When money gets allocated for political reasons or political lobbying, sometimes it pans out economically and sometimes it doesn't. So I don't expect the One Belt, One Road initiative to be fully successful. I expect it to produce a lot of waste, a lot of fraud and corruption and also a lot of uh, bridges to nowhere. At the same time, it is a grand geopolitical project about Chinese power in the world going forward and therefore will have significant consequences and is already having significant consequences. So just to finish up on the geographic piece here, the bullet point one, if you look at a map, I'm sorry I didn't bring maps this morning, but then again, this is a room that I don't have to teach geography to, <laughs> unlike most rooms where I give a speech or a lecture. Right? If you look at a map, uh, the most important geopolitical, geographical, geoeconomic fact about China is that it has no California. No California. Right? The United States is a superpower that has chosen, as it were, a really advantageous geography. To the north is Canada, to the south is Mexico, to the east, fish, and to the west, fish again. <laughs> right? That's a very easy environment to be in, and the west coast of the United States opens up into what we call the Pacific Rim. It couldn't be more advantageous. It is a very significant military buffer, the Pacific Ocean, and at the same time, it's a highway for commerce to an extremely rich, dynamic region where all the people live. So it couldn't be better. China, however, has a very different geography. They have land and sea borders with 20 countries. That's the most of any country in the world today. 
So they, and they have a lot of disputes, territorial disputes with many of their neighbors because the Chinese are ambitious and because it, past settlements of geographical disputes weren't always accepted. They were imposed. But the main thing about China is if you move to the west, what you find, that is, if you're internal China and you're moving to the west of the country, what you find is gigantic desert, and that desert is expanding for ecological reasons, right? The Chinese, if, if every person in China drinks one or two extra glasses of water a day over the next 10 years, that desert will hit Beijing. That's how fast that desert is moving. So they have ecological challenge in the western regions. It's not propitious geography. And then they also have kind of ethnic political challenges there because that's where their Muslim population still lives and that's where Tibet right, is and the regions that are bordering Xinjiang, new province is the translation of Xinjiang, western China, as well as the Tibetan plateau. Now, of course, many Han Chinese are moving in as migrants, but nonetheless, there is continued unrest there, this political problem. So that's their California, desert and unrest. And so what the Chinese are doing is they're building a, a California through Pakistan and Burma. That is to say, they're gaining access to the ocean, the Indian Ocean, by building infrastructure, railroads, pipelines, and through Pakistan and Burma, and then building ports on the sea in Pakistan and Burma. This gives them an outlet. This gives them a California. Of course, it's much more difficult to build a California through Pakistan and Burma, which are not actually stable places, than it is to build a California through California, <laughs> which everything you can say about California, it's nonetheless an uh, integral part of the, the same country, the United States. And so to the Chinese, right, if they want to expand their influence and power globally, land is one way, this greater Eurasia through the one belt, one road, but a big part of that is the sea, and the sea is blocked from them in the West, and so Pakistan and Burma are their main outlets. This is why Pakistan and Burma are central to China's geopolitical ambitions. And, of course, the United States has a fraught relation with Pakistan but refuses to abandon Pakistan entirely even though we suspect and more than suspect that Pakistan is supporting the Taliban, for example, in Afghanistan who are killing American soldiers. And also, we don't want to abandon uh, Burma or Myanmar. They're now, they've expelled, as you know, several hundred thousand uh, Muslim Rohingya from uh, Burma, from Myanmar. Nonetheless, if we abandon them entirely or we criticize them to the point where they abandon us, this plays into Chinese hands. So this is why, in, in part, not wholly, not, not alone, but in part, that we cannot really, quote, give up <coughs> not really take too hard a line on Pakistan and Burma because of their strategic significance as China's potential California. Anyway, so this is the uh, number one point, the, the big geographical point. You can see that it's really fraught. It's not a neutral concept. It's, got, it's value laden, it's politics laden, 
and it's competitive, rivalrous, in a great power sense. And all of this is going to be true going forward, right? Russia considers itself an ancient civilization, Iran an ancient civilization, Turkey and the Ottoman Empire an ancient civilization, and China an ancient civilization. They all have claims that compete with each other's claims that are rooted in a, a sense of grand history, very grand history. Now, they can cooperate to a certain extent, and they do cooperate, because this is now going to bring me to point number two. And this is where I'm going to take the values discussion a little bit deeper. And that's that Eurasia is an illiberal concept. It's not always anti-Western. For example, Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan uses the term Eurasia to try to balance West and East because they're neighbors with Russia and China and could potentially be swallowed up by one or both, as has happened in the past. So they need friendly relations with the West, and they call themselves Eurasia in terms of a bridge between East and West. So they're not anti-Western by any means, Kazakhstan. However, Eurasia, and also if you throw in the Turkish case, for a long time Turkey felt it was the bridge right, between the West and the East, a member of NATO still, not a member of the EU and no prospect of entering the EU, but nonetheless an important partner in the NATO alliance. For a long time, Turkey was not anti-Western because it was, once again, the bridge between the West and the East. Now, as you know, that's shifting. But nonetheless, Eurasia is not ipso facto anti-Western, but it can be an important platform for anti-Westernism more and more going forward. But it is illiberal. So I'm going to take you back to 1921, right after the Russian Revolution. This is point number two, bullet point number two. And there was a, a very substantial emigration from the former Russian Empire as a result of the Revolution and Civil War. More than two million people left and these were often the educated people. This is a much greater exodus than in the case of the French Revolution. And moreover, in the case of the French Revolution, many of the émigrés went back once the revolutionary process settled down. In the Russian imperial or Russian Eurasia sense, uh, the return was very slight. And this emigration, uh, so trying to figure out what happened, anti-Soviet or anti-Bolshevik or anti-communist uh, you know, regime emigration for the most part, but patriotic, Russian imperial patriotic. Right? Many of them were still monarchists, not all of them, but they certainly believed in Russia great power. And so a few had ambivalent sense vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union revived great power status. Right? not under a communist regime, but they held out hope that the communist regime could evolve into something more Russian nationalist. Anyway, in 1921, a very small group of these people put out a book called Exodus to the East. It was an emigre publication in Sofia, and their argument was that um, Russia was not European and not Asian, but Eurasian, and that this was a civilization unto itself. It was self-sufficient economically or autarkic. 
it was also what they called demotic, which was a form of democracy without rule of law, or what we would call illiberal democracy. Demotic from demos, from of the people, right? Illiberal democracy. So they celebrated, they celebrated the fact that Russia was not a Western rule of law constitutional order. To them, this was a positive. They also said, you know, it's not really an empire. It's a civilization unto itself. It's a symphony of peoples. Symphony from the Eastern Orthodox uh, concept, right? And so this, there's a kind of apologia for empire, autarky or self-sufficiency, and illiberalism built into this ideology known as Eurasianism, introduced almost imperceptibly in this book that nobody read in 1921 called Exodus to the East. This now, this now will grow in stature over time. And this Eurasianism is extremely popular in Russia today. And not only in Russia today, you'll hear right after me, Professor Mike Reynolds talk about some of these issues, right? The interface between the Slavic and the Turkic world. And part of the interface is the concept, of, the shared concept of Eurasianism and its illiberal quality. And so we have to be careful when we use the term Eurasia because it's not neutral even in geographic terms, and it's associated with a political project, with a political project. Now, I'm not talking about academia here. There is an academic version of the political project, which is called Central Eurasian Studies. And Central Eurasian Studies is sort of what we used to call Inner Asia. And it's flourishing pr predominantly at Indiana University. If you go on the website, the Central Eurasian the studies department there at Indiana University website is full of amazing scholarship in very difficult languages. Right? And their argument is that Central Eurasia is a civilization. Right? That, you know, nomads, grasslands, horses, the steppes, shamanism, that this is not the absence of civilization, which is what the Chinese sources say and the Russian sources say. Right? That nomadic, not just sedentary people can have civilization. That they can produce a culture. That their culture is valuable. That they're not a pre-civilizational entity. Right? This is the argument in academia of Central Eurasian studies. This is a very self-conscious attempt on their part to elevate Central Eurasian studies to civilizational status. To impart a sense of civilization to the nomad to let the nomads have the kind of, uh, let's say, stature that accrues to those real civilizations previously that we would call Europe, Asia, or China, right? Byzantium, Rome, okay. So that's the academic version of the project, Central Eurasian Studies, instead of uh, Inner Asia. And there are great examples of it. It's very difficult scholarship in these multiple languages, right? Because the place is full of languages. And they have a point that we have condescended to the nomads. We have condescended to the shamans, right? We celebrate religion. Shamanism is paganism, and on it goes. Right? They have a point. I'm not adopting their point. I'm just pointing out that there is a project in academia, Central Eurasian Studies, but I'm talking about a political project in the world that takes Eurasianism, Eurasia, to justify right, authoritarian regimes, 
to justify imperial conquest, to justify what's happening in Russia today, in Turkey today, in Iran today, and in China today. And so as we ourselves try to think about how to use the terminology, how to employ the concepts, we want to be careful not necessarily to validate the political projects that are associated with them. I don't know about you, but I would not prefer to live under an authoritarian regime that didn't have respect for civil liberties and property rights. So I'm very cautious in using the term Eurasia. Okay. So point number two is that there's a political project associated with Eurasia. And this political project is one which is unfree, and it's unfree by design, and it celebrates unfreedom as an achievement. It celebrates illiberal democracy, as they call it, demotic power. It celebrates its authoritarian regimes. It celebrates its imperial conquest by talking about a new civilization that's not really a conquest or a subordination, but is a symphony of peoples. Right? Okay. Now point number three. How do I teach the region? What is it that I tell students? I'll just check for time here. There's no clock on the wall. I think I'm okay with time. Yeah. All right, thanks, Al. Um, point number three we'll spend not very much time on, and then as I said, we'll, we'll open up the floor at this point. Uh, point number three is the way to conceptualize for me this place is to talk about imperial exchange. Imperial exchange. What do I mean by imperial exchange? Well, what we've discovered retrospectively now with better scholarship about the Mongol Empire is that they facilitated not just destruction and conquest, but also massive imperial exchange. And if you look at the courts, the Mongol courts, under Chinggis Khan, his sons and grandsons, what you see is the whole world congregated in the courts, whether it's the Yuan court in China, the Ilkhanid court in Persia, right? to a certain extent, the Golden Horde or the Steppe uh, configurations, confederations. It's hard to know exactly how to describe them because they, they weren't states in the same way that the Chinese or the Persian one was. But nonetheless, you see there that they have astronomers and physicians and map makers, astrologers. They have all talent from all over regardless right, of its origin. And they bring it together as a form of war booty but they nonetheless allow that talent to flourish within their court system. One of the most fantastic things about the Mongol court in China was that Persian was the main language that they spoke to each other. The lingua franca, as it were, was Persian in the Mongol court in China. And so we have this model of imperial exchange, which the Mongols don't originate. You know, to talk about the Mongols is not to start at the beginning, it's starting in the middle somewhere, but it's just a nice example that one can teach. One can teach Eurasia through imperial exchange by taking the Mongols seriously as facilitators. Right? Once again, they're destructive. They have conquest. This is not a whitewashing. Imperial exchange can coexist or be alongside the destructive elements too. Moreover, exchange is not always equal. We know that, right? You know, they came and there was an exchange from Manhattan. 
where I live now. Right? $24, the cliche is $24 worth of beads and jewelry exchanged for Manhattan. And so was that an equal exchange? Was that a fair exchange? Was that the kind of bargaining where you know both sides understood what they were doing and if one didn't agree, they could just walk away and be whole? Obviously, exchange is not never equal or rarely equal, and the bargaining process entails some coercion. So when we use vocabulary like imperial exchange, we are not whitewashing the history. But it is an interesting and important model because what we ended up with in world history and the global history stuff is a civilizational approach. You get the chapter on Africa. You get the chapter on Europe. You get the chapter on South America. Right? And, and the reason you get it that way is because it's a lot easier to teach that way. But the textbook that, that, that I was uh, privileged to be a part of, we have all the world regions in the same chapter because each world region helped produce the other. European civilization is a product of South America, is a product of Asia. It's not a product on, on its own, unto itself. And so this model of imperial exchange or this model of borrowing, interaction, mutual influence is accepted more and more today. It's just very hard to teach. If you're trying to teach world history with five world regions in a single chapter, right? the students are like, you know, which end is up here? And we get that. And it's, it is much harder, but it is the challenge, I believe, that we have to rise to. Right? So this imperial exchange model. There are some really excellent examples of this that have been pulled off that are not famous. There's this book by Nikolai Yorga, I-O-R-G-A, called Byzantium After Byzantium. And it's about the imperial legacies of the Byzantine Empire that live on in the territories of the former Byzantine Empire after they become nation-states. And it's very interesting to see that despite the national cultures and the national differences, that institutions have a lot in common across those new national borders. Because there was this creation, Byzantium, right? that like the EU was an integrating project. It had integrating aspirations and to a certain extent, not wholly, not 100%, it achieved a lot of this integration. And moreover, you then press back to the origins of the Ottoman Empire, and you can see that they pull the entire Byzantine elite into the Ottoman elite. And they change their na- the names of the elite family sometimes. But nonetheless, it didn't displace or wipe out Byzantium, the Ottoman Empire. It incorporated, because that's what empires do, right? They incorporate. Empires do two things. They empower locals. They take sides in local battles. They don't grant local autonomy. They empower one local group against another local group. Right? Those who bargain well with the center rise up in the localities. So empires provide the kind of scaffolding or decision, decisive power in the local struggles. They pick one side or the other that's going to be loyal to the center. And they give that one side, quote, autonomy locally. But it's an autonomy achieved against the aims of the various other groups that are in the locality. That's one thing empire does. And the other thing empire does is it's a highway both out and in. It absorbs the local stuff into the center, 
and it pushes out this new version of the local stuff, which it brings together right in the melting pot of the metropolis. And so the empire can take the local influences, recombine them, kind of like recombinant DNA, and then send them out, project them out. So an imperial culture is produced, which then has local qualities in it, but also influences the local. This is the key concept, in my view, of how to teach the Eurasian stuff. You can see the Tatar elite. When Ivan the Terrible conquers Kazan in 1550s, and you get that confection on Red Square, St. Basil's, which is built in order to celebrate Ivan the Terrible's conquest of Kazan, the Tatar Khanate, on the Volga River. Right? The Tatar nobles get folded into the Russian nobility. They bring in almost the entire nobility of the conquered Tatars inside the Russian nobility and the Russian state. This is typical. As I said, this is what happens in the Ottoman case vis-a-vis -vis Byzantium and what happens in all of these cases. So we need to see this layering. We need to see this exchange, this efflorescence. Right? We need to take that as our point of departure and show the students, teach the students how you know, Asia helped create Europe, how South America helped create... Well, this could be in commodities. This could be in the food that they began to eat, right? The Portuguese are the ones that spread those peppers and that give you that Korean spicy food, right? Et cetera, et cetera. These are things that you know, but we need to take this now and make it into our major point of departure. Rather than fight battles about, you know, whose civilization is higher and who belongs to Europe and who doesn't really belong to Europe, and rather than take up the banner of Eurasianism, which, as I say, is an illiberal, anti-democratic project, ultimately, because its version of democracy is the people don't have power. Right? Rather than take up that, we need to take up this call, which the Mongols really crystallized, didn't begin, but crystallized, and which others follow. So I, I wrote an article that's now 10 years ago, which Alan will be able to distribute to you uh, in a journal called Critica, and the article's name is Mongol Commonwealth. Mongol, where I laid out the analysis that I'm giving you today, including how to teach this imperial exchange approach. And, and so if you look at this Byzantium after Byzantium, the Nikolai Yorga book, once again, it's a book that it's not nobody's syllabus. It's completely forgotten. It's buried under the dust in the off-site storage sites, never to be called by anybody. There's a, there's a version of that for Eurasia by Christopher Beckwith, B-E-C-K-W-I-T-H. And his is called Empires of the Silk Road. Empires of the Silk Road. The problem with Beckwith is not that he's forgotten the way Jorge is forgotten. It's that Beckwith is a polemicist. He's kind of angry at the world. He's angry at postmodernism. He's angry at those people who are in Chinese studies or Russian studies who condescend about the nomads. And his anger is not persuasive, right? If you're going to try to persuade people that you got a new idea that they can use, it helps not to call everybody an idiot. <laughs> But that's what he does. So you got to get beyond Beckwith's uh, chip on the shoulder, beyond his polemicizing, 
beyond his apocalyptic, you know, postmodernism has taken over the world. Yeah, postmodernism, what I call po- pomo potpourri, <laughs> is not taking over the world. It's there, and in fact, it's produced some insights, even though as a whole, I don't think it's very incisive. But anyway, it's not a big threat. But So Beckwith has a few bees in his bonnet. You'll have to get beyond that. But he's got a layering of what makes this region a region, having to do with political structures that are rooted in ancient times and carried up through the present. And he knows a dozen or so of the languages of the region, so he's got source materials from just every nook and cranny. There are things that we don't know about. Islam and Buddhism fought a war, fought a massive inter-Asian war in the early modern period and ended up producing the Dalai Lama in Tibet. Uh, and the Muslims won the war, but there was this uh, retreat to the Tibetan plateau, and that's where you get Lamaism in this thing called the Dalai Lama. Right? So there are these fantastic stories that are buried that need to be excavated and that can be taught within this region which uh, can be taught in a way, as I say, that doesn't validate the contemporary anti-liberal, anti-constitutional political projects. Anyway, maybe that was enough to launch a discussion. Maybe it wasn't, but we're launching the discussion now anyway. All right, thank you for your attention. Thank you. (laughs) We have uh, two people walking around with microphones, uh, so wait till the... uh, Microphone, come to you. Uh, just raise your hand, and we'll try to get to you. Would anybody like to be heard? Over here, you got two okay. hands on this side. Right here. Very front row, and then you're next. I saw his hand first, and then Judy, you're next. Okay, I hope this is not too far off topic, but you said it in... You, com- you are... I'm Christopher... Oh, sorry. Right. I'm Christopher Colvin. And where do you teach? I teach at St. Stephen's Episcopal School in Austin, Texas. Okay. And I was... Um, I'm curious about the contrast you set up between, for example, Russia, for lack of a better term, and Ottomans, in contrast to the Chinese... That the Chinese... Ah, there we are. That the Chinese um, are settled in their center of the world view, but that the Russians and the Ottomans have this wobbling between east and west. I don't know China well enough to know if they really are that stable in their own identity, but um, I w- if you have care to comment further on both those regions, the Russian imperial region and the Ottoman imperial region, have always had a rather strong internal debate about that ambiguous or ambivalent identity. Yes. So let's start with the Russian story first. Uh, What you've got in the Russian case is a a kind of envy, desire to emulate, and fear of Europe at the same time. Right? Europe is an example and it's a threat. Europe is more powerful. Europe has better technology. Uh, at the same time, Europe is successful. And so you get this, how do we borrow from Europe? How do we take the things from Europe that we want? 
to protect our own identity from being swallowed up by Europe. Right? And so this debate, which we usually translate into westernizers and Slavophiles, there's something to that uh, dichotomy, those people who want institutionally to emulate the West. Those are westernizers. Slavophiles, those people who do not want at all to emulate the West and have this more Eurasian, anti-Western, anti-liberal, you know, anti-constitutional order, pro-empire or apologia for empire, pro-dictatorship or pro-authoritarianism. So that's the debate that we normally see. The problem with that debate is that it doesn't uh, understand as well that the political regime is not westernizer or Slavophile. The political regime is borrow from the West to compete with the West. Not become the West, but protect Russia's own self-imagined identity. So Peter the Great goes to the West and he doesn't bring back things like separation of powers or constitutionalism, right? He brings back how to build a better navy and how to build a better bureaucracy to rule over people. He brings back those techniques, those mechanisms which empower the state in order for the state to compete in the international system. That's going to be true of Peter the Great's successors in the Romanov dynasty. It's going to be true of the Stalin regime. And it's true of the Putin regime today. And so the westernizer Slavophile debate is useful. There's value in discussing that. And people align one way or the other inside the, the culture over centuries. But the bigger framework, the framework that's sometimes missing, is the geopolitical one, which is borrow from the West emulate the West in order not to emulate the West, in order not to become like the West politically, in order to retain our uh, demotic, Eurasian, illiberal, anti-Western identity. That's the principal dynamic. Now, there are nuances in there, right? There's a very big pro-Western intelligentsia, Westernizers. They tend to be a small minority in the country, but they tend to be the people that Americans talk to when they go over there. So we get a very skewed sense, right? These people speak English. They uh, travel a lot to the United States and to Western Europe. And they seem to think like us. And they seem to want the same things we want. And they're the people we talk to because they're the ones who speak English. And then there's this gigantic conservative population that's socially conservative, right? That believes, for example, that the family unit has to be a man and a woman. Now, you can argue whether that's true or not. I'm not taking a stand on whether that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying that there's a huge population of people who are social conservative that we don't talk to as much because they're not westernizing intelligentsia. They're not urban westernizing. They live in small towns, rural communities. They don't necessarily speak English, right? But they are, in fact, the majority of the people there. And so there's this... The way we get the understanding of these places is we look for those things that we validate and we find them, and they're a a smaller sliver, the westernizing intelligentsia, the urban, liberal, um, pro-gay rights, etc. Those people exist, and many of them are very courageous. They risk their lives, or their livelihoods at least. But but then there's this other piece. And this other piece fits more into the regime and the geopolitics 
which is a competitive understanding of the Western-Russian relationship. And that competitive understanding is rooted in a sense that the West is a threat. It's an opportunity, but it's also mostly a threat. And that threat needs to be countered by borrowing from the West, importing Western technology. Right? Every single uh, technology of the Stalin first and second year, five year plan, every single one is imported from the West. Everything that Stalin builds, with one exception, synthetic rubber. That's it. They invent synthetic rubber themselves. But everything else they're buying. And they're buying it because the West is in depression and no one else is buying it and the Soviets are good customers, right? So that's the Russia piece in my view, right, in terms of what you just spent. Now, the, I hesitate to go to the Turkish piece because this, the talk right after me, I think, is going to cover it by Professor Mike Reynolds much better than I will cover it. But what's interesting about the Turkish piece now is that Russia is an example that is working superficially and that the Turkish leader looks like he's emulating. Now, he's got his own domestic uh, um, uh, dynamic going on, and there are things which are he himself thought of before Putin thought of, and he himself tried. We don't want to make him uh, just an emulator of the Putin stuff. He's a creator of some of the things he's doing now as well. So I, I don't mean to set this up as you know Turkey's trailing Russia and, and copying Russia. But nonetheless, Russia is enhancing the dynamic that was at play inside Turkey itself as an example. But Russia is not a, a success. It's not winning, right? It's a failure. Today's Russia is a complete failure. I could give you all sorts of details and stats about this. Right? Uh, the Soviet economy at peak was one-third the U.S. economy. The 1980s reached about one-third. It's hard to know because they don't have real prices. You know, it's a planned economy, so the measurement is is not the same. But best guess, best estimates are about one third. The Russian economy today is one fifteenth the size of the American economy. So you went from one third to one fifteenth. What's that tell you in relative power terms? American defense budget is over six hundred billion, and you know, like it or not, we can afford that. That's a small percentage of GDP, and we can increase the defense budget. Whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, we can do that. The Russian defense budget is 60 billion, one tenth. So their economy is one fifteenth, and their defense budget is one tenth. So that tells you they're spending more on defense than we are relative to their economy, but they can't grow their defense budget very easily because their economy is not growing. Right? They began to stagnate when oil was $100 a barrel. Oil and gas are not the Russian economy. They're 30% of the Russian economy, hydrocarbons. 30%. Right? This is not Saudi Arabia. This is not Kuwait. This is not Qatar. You know, this, Russia's got an economy that is bigger than oil and gas. But oil and gas are the principal revenue for the regime. So the price of oil and gas declines. That means that the regime has less money. So at $50 a barrel or worse, the Russian regime is hard-pressed to compete with the United States, especially since they're already only one-tenth the size of our defense budget. I could go on and I could go on. Russia had an ally called Syria, which was a, which was a whole country, was highly educated, and had a dynamic economy. And what does Russia have now? They own part of a civil war in that place. So is that a victory? 
Is the Russian intervention in Syria a geostrategic gain? They went from an ally of a stable country with a nice military base and good exchange to owning a civil war and a regime that's a sliver of that former country. Right? So I don't see that's a gain. Ukraine. Ukraine was split between pro-West and pro-Russia. Now it's the most pro-Western it's ever been. Is that a gain? Show me how that's a gain. Russia had a military base in Crimea before. Now they got it again. And Crimea is this economic basket case that they're hard-pressed to afford because the tourist industry was destroyed, which was the only real uh, piece of the economy that worked there. So I could go on down the list of how Russia is massive failure in strategic terms. Tactically nimble, tactically able to steal the headlines and poke the eye in America. They stole Hillary Clinton's emails and embarrassed her. So what's the long-term strategic game? Who's the democracy? Who's the dynamic society? Who's the wealthy, rich country? They stole the emails, right? And the joke, of course, is that you know she had the private server and made herself vulnerable, as if the Russians are not in the State Department servers. <laughs> Obviously, right? So, you know, I mean, we get hysterical over this Russian stuff for all the obvious reasons that you know, because you go back, unlike most of my students, you go back to a time when there was the Soviet menace and the Cold War and everything else, right? So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but the Russian thing, to me, is a version of a longer-standing story. I wrote about this in Foreign Affairs last year, uh, um, about Russian geopolitics, and Alan will also, uh, I think, be able to point you to that article, explaining the, the, in, in, with more depth the answer to the question I'm giving you now. Anyway, thank you. Judy? You, where do you teach? Uh, yes, hi, I'm Judy Oaken. I teach at Camden County College in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, hmm. right across the river. Um, my question relates to the One Road Initiative that you mentioned, yeah. and that's fascinating because I teach geography, so I hadn't heard of that. But um, I'm wondering, who is working to possibly uh, formulate that? And the other thing that I'm wondering is, what is the main way that China ships goods to Europe now? Is it through the Trans-Siberian Railroad? Yeah, so the One Belt, One Road initiative is a large idea that was imposed on many individual projects that have now been galvanized into a bigger story. And Xi Jinping <coughs> is taking credit for this. You know, he's a very ambitious guy. Right now we're sitting through the Party Congress which is, uh, seems to be further enhancing his power. You never know in authoritarian regimes because you can't see the inside. And sometimes when they, when they get up on a soapbox and they tell you, oh, he's the core leader. Oh, he's more powerful than the other leaders before him. Oh, he's on the same level as Mao and Dong. When you've got to yell that on the soapbox, it's sometimes because it's not true behind the scenes. And behind the scenes, I don't know. Nobody knows except those few on the inside behind the scenes. It, it could be that he's still trying to build the power that he's claiming in practice, or he could be exercising that power already. But in any case, he's ambitious to have that kind of power, and the One Belt, One Road initiative, as they now call it, embellishes, it kind of burnishes his image that he's responsible for this. It's a grandiose infrastructure project. It's all about ports, railroads, canals, uh, pipelines, you know, oil and gas pipelines. 
It's about connecting Eurasian economies, 97 countries, to the Chinese economy. One of the things you hear, and it's Euro-Africa in addition, which I should mention. One of the things you hear a lot is, you know, the U.S. provides aid, but then it demands conditions. You have to respect human rights. You can't put people in jail for political reasons, or we cut off the aid, right? China supposedly provides aid without any strings attached. Oh, you know, you want a telephone network? We'll give you the telephone network, and you can jail as many people as you want. No strings attached, right? And therefore, countries are saying, well, geez, China's the better deal. We can get what we need in infrastructure terms, and we don't have to pretend to release a few dissidents from prison every time there's a visit from the U.S. Secretary of State or whatever. Well, this is a lie, because it's not no strings attached from the Chinese side. When the Chinese build the African country's telephone network, they own the communication system. And if the African country then starts to have internet criticisms of China, guess what happens to those internet criticisms of China? Somebody at the top pushes the button and, and wipes that stuff out. So the idea of no strings attached, once again, we can't accept the China story at face value. It's very easy to criticize America, especially under the current situation we have in D.C. And the Chinese are very successfully maneuvering into this position, right? The Chinese are mercantilists. They don't play by the same rules. They steal intellectual property. And yet, because of our current president, the Chinese grandstand and say, geez, you know, we're for free trade. This guy's for tariffs and protectionism. But the Chinese version of free trade is mercantilist. It's advantageous to China. It's, we'll let you into our market, but you have to give us your secret technology, which then we can use to become competitors for you. Right? This is the definition of mercantilism. So I'm not saying that the Chinese are bad, the Chinese are evil. The Chinese are an incredible civilization. And what they've achieved is astonishing in my lifetime. Right? Per capita, GDP in China was about $200 a person under Mao. It's now 14000 plus at purchasing power parity. Right? At least 400 million Chinese have been lifted out of poverty. This is an unbelievable story, and the Chinese deserve credit for this. They did this. So uh, this is not an anti-Chinese story, but nonetheless, they play the game their way. And this One Belt and One Road initiative is an attempted subordination of Eurasia to Chinese interests. There's a little bit of bargaining. Once again, there's not everybody. China doesn't get everything it wants. Not everybody concedes because some have greater leverage in the system. But it is an attempt to expand Chinese power and influence abroad, strings attached, in other words. Now, as I say, the economic calculations don't always make sense in some of the big infrastructure investments, right? This is why we have the term white elephant or bridge to nowhere. Not everything is that way. Many of the things do make sense economically. And so that stuff is getting built too. But some of the other stuff will then have to be paid for in the sense that they'll have to write down the loans, they'll have to take a loss. A lot of people are going to lose significant money because it doesn't have the economic rationale as the one belt, one road plays out. So it's very exciting from the Chinese point of view. 
it, it, it's an organizing principle. It's a grand strategy. It's something the leader can take credit for. And it's having real-world effects as we sit in this room. So it's really important to watch. The United States' answer to this was um, the trade deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, which was negotiated under President Obama and was one of the first things that President Trump repudiated because he argued that it didn't take the interests sufficiently of American workers and that globalization is a swindle and the workers pay the price and these other things. There's something to that uh, argument, but TPP was in fact a better version of previous trade deals. The provisions that had been negotiated were better, including for workers than previously. Not always better, but but often better. and in any case, it was 12 different countries that had made concessions, and it was pretty remarkable. I don't know if the Senate would have ratified it, even had Trump not canceled it. So we can't blame the fall of TPP entirely on the Trump administration, because the Senate was a little bit squishy now on free trade because of the climate in the country and because of the protectionism that's rising in the population, especially in the Republican primaries. Uh, Republican primary voters. So, uh, but nonetheless, that was our answer to China's One Belt and One Road, the TPP, which to me was a very good answer and uh, should be revived. Uh, But I don't see the uh, revival uh, easy in the current political context, either because of uh, Trump's administration or because of the sentiment in the country as a whole. And after all, we are a real democracy and sentiment in the country as a whole matters, and you've got to be able to sell something like TPP to the larger population. You have to have the American people behind things, otherwise the Senate is just not going to ratify it, or the next Senate is not going to live up to it, if, even if this one were to ratify it. So, you know, democracy has to have a, a strong, powerful, a popular support for any major effort like that, and we don't have that right now. So we're now, as it were, without a strategy in the East Asian region uh, vis-a-vis the Chinese and vis-a-vis others. And it's, it's worrying. Once again, not because China's evil or China's bad, uh, but because there's a competition. And we're not really in that competition the same way we were before. So it's very troubling. Okay, we got next. Who's next? Yes, sir. Do you have a microphone or no? Let's wait for the mic. Hi, I'm uh, Tyler Miller from Brooklyn, New York. Um, I teach at Poly Prep Country Day School there. Um, I wondered if you could comment um, on the kind of uh, shifting power uh, in the Middle East toward Iran. Uh, Iran finds itself maybe pursuing great power status, at least regionally. It's you know situated between a very strong military Russian state uh, and China. Uh, and I wonder, you know, in the, the changes since the sort of collapse of the Hussein regime in Iraq uh, and the ongoing wars in Syria and Iraq, um, where does Iran sort of fit into this kind of uh, kind of new present situation? Yeah, that's a thank you for that. That's a really big question. I'll do my best to try to be a little bit briefer than than I have been so far with these questions because we could talk the rest of the conference on that one. So the Middle East is divided, as you know, between Shia and Sunni Muslim populations. 
That division is not quite 50-50, but there is a balance, a kind of counterbalance of one or the other. Saudi Arabia is now the great power that feels it represents the Sunni Muslim population, and Iran, of course, is the great power that represents the Shia Muslim population. And Iraq had a Sunni leader under Saddam Hussein and now has a very much Shia-influenced coalition government which has close relations in Iran because the Shia are a greater number than the Sunnis inside Iraq. And then you look at Yemen and you look at Lebanon and you look at Syria and you can see all of this Sunni-Shia pushing back and forth the Saudi-Iranian proxy war. So if you think about this in geostrategic terms, not in moral terms, in geostrategic terms, uh, there's a built-in structural limitation to Iran's power in the Middle East, which is Sunni Muslims. Now, Iran can and does cause a lot of grief. Right? They've destroyed, helped destroy Syria. They didn't start that, but uh, they've contributed egregiously to that destruction. They wreaked havoc in Lebanon, and now we have the Yemen proxy war where it's just a humanitarian catastrophe. So in moral terms, in human terms, it's very disheartening. But in geostrategic terms, there's, there's this counterbalance. Iran cannot take over the whole Middle East. And moreover, most of what their influence is, is uh, civil war. I mean, how, would, you, would you call Syria a success? No, we've had that conversation. Would you call Lebanon a success? Would you call Yemen a success? So in, in, in long-term strategic gain uh, calculation, Iran hasn't gained anything in the Middle East. They have additionally destabilized, already destabilized uh, areas. And they've uh, increased the mayhem in those areas. And they're able to do that going forward. And they would have been able to do that going forward whether or not uh, whatever our policy might have been. That doesn't mean that the degree can't be uh, regulated and there can't be some pushback on our side. But if you're a geostrategic thinker with opportunity costs and you know America can't do everything and there are many problems in the world, where should we invest our time, energy, and resources? And you look at the Middle East with this balance between the Sunni and the Shiite that puts a structural limit on Iran's influence, and you look at what's happening in East Asia, where all the marbles are, and you say, you know, we have to figure out how not to get deeper into Middle Eastern issues for opportunity cost reasons alone. The problem is, is that the Iranian stuff keeps drawing us back in, and of course the humanitarian stuff is horrific, and we can now see that in real time with cable in a way that we couldn't see it, you know, way back when. Vietnam was the sort of beginning of seeing the world when, when it went to mayhem. And that had just tremendous influence, as you know, on the sort of American domestic politics and what was possible geostrategically and in foreign policy, right? The television, the televising of the war. It was on tape back then. It wasn't live, but nonetheless. And so we have that issue to deal with. And if you're a humanitarian and you believe in uh, the responsibility to protect and stuff, then the Middle East draws you in for sure. But if you're a geostrategic thinker, who thinks that humanitarianism is important, but we can't fix everything, then you're, then you're thinking the Middle East is a place you don't want to be 
more deeply involved in. I could go on on this subject, right? The only thing that could really change the balance of power would be if Iran got nukes. And so you think to yourself, well, geez, I don't like everything they're doing, but if I can stop their nuclear program, even for a certain period of time, then I'll have achieved more for U.S. interests than any other thing I could do. And so I'm not saying that the Iranian nuclear deal was the right deal or a good deal. I'm not taking sides. You can see the whole lecture, I'm not taking sides on any of these issues. But I'm just saying you can understand the logic behind that type of policy. The Sunni-Shia kind of balance of terror, and therefore as long as there are no nukes, it's going to be horrible, but it's going to be manageable. Now, once again, you can argue that the nuclear deal wasn't a good idea or you don't like aspects of it, whatever. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I can understand the logic behind entering into that. So therefore, I'm not going to get any concessions on all the other stuff. I'm not going to get the missile program concessions. I'm not going to get the proxy war concessions. I want those, but I'm not going to be able to stop them. But I'm going to be able to stop the nuclearization, at least for now. And of course, the war plan... Uh, for Iran uh, had a, uh, was basically um, a joke uh, before the nuclear deal because we couldn't get in there and see anything. And now they won't talk about this at the Pentagon, but now we have inspectors on the ground there. So the war plan is improving a lot from the nuclear deal. We got eyes and ears there. We know where their stuff is much better than we knew before. And the more inspection we have, even if it's not a full inspection, even if Iran cheats a little bit on the inspection, even if they try to hide stuff. Right? The more inspection we have, the more capability we have to do the thing that people are saying we should have done instead of going into the nuclear deal. So that's the irony is the Pentagon likes the deal for the time being. They like it a lot. And so that should tell you something. But once again, I'm not taking a side there because many people are against that deal. And I'm not saying I'm for it or against it. Okay, but much more could be said. This is a deep question. Right? And you, I mean, you have this massive arc of instability, as Brzezinski once called it, having been a major contributor to it <laughs> himself, right? In, in fighting the Soviet proxy war in a sort of no-holds-barred fashion and empowering the Islamists in the way that he did, I wouldn't say that he's innocent of the arc of instability, right? which we're still living with. We have, uh, we have American families with uh, family members in Afghanistan still, family members in Iraq still. The Libya thing, how, how you want to come down on that. So we haven't gotten a lot out of our policies in the Middle East. They, maybe you can argue they've been poorly executed, that they were the right policies but weren't properly executed. Once again, I'm not taking sides. But the strategic bang for the buck in the Middle East has been negative, not even minimal, but negative. And so this would then caution you about Iran. Now, we fought three ground wars in East Asia, and each one was seemed less necessary than the previous one. Japan, World War II, I don't think very many people in this room would argue that that was the wrong war or that we didn't need to fight that war. Right? They attacked Pearl Harbor, and we fought the Japanese, and it was a very difficult war. It was amazing what we did, the Pacific island-hopping war. It's just breathtaking. It's a much bigger story than D-Day and Normandy and all that other stuff, although that stuff is important too, don't get me wrong. 
Then we fought the Korean War. And the Korean War looked necessary and felt necessary. It didn't end well. And it still hasn't ended well. We're still living with it. And we can argue in this room about whether it was a necessary war or not, but it doesn't have the same feeling of necessity as the fight against Japan has. Already you're diminishing the sense of necessity. And then you get to the Vietnam War and that same dynamic of, you know, we can argue whether it was necessary or not. We can argue whether we fought it properly or not. But it doesn't have that same necessity as, as, as the Japanese war. So with the three land wars in Asia, there's been a diminishing sense of the necessity of each one and a diminishing uh, feel that we got something positive out of them. Right? I mean, we lost the war in Vietnam, and now Vietnam is one of the most pro-American countries in East Asia. So that's taught us a lot about, you know, retrospectively about policy. Now we're in the Middle East, and we're doing these land wars in the Middle East. So we're learning as a nation. We're kind of repeating the learning curve that we had in East Asia. Uh, the scale has been much smaller because the East Asian wars were really big wars. I mean, they were whole society wars. We don't fight whole society wars anymore. You know, military families are just a small part of our country now. We don't have the draft, etc. But nonetheless, we're on this learning curve, and we're not learning very quickly. Right? We had the first Iraq war, the second Iraq war. We had the Libya episode. Now we're dealing with Iran, right? And... You know, many people would argue today that the idea of a land war in East Asia is the last thing you want to start talking about and contemplating. We're not yet there on the Middle Eastern stuff. The learning curve is still slow, painful, and costly. So what do you do instead of a land war? Well, that's where you got to invest in diplomacy, in allies, in economic leverage, and all the other stuff, you know, we used to do really well. Mobilization of the country for the space race, the, the, the stuff after Sputnik. The Russians put Sputnik up, as you know, in 1957, and what happened? Our whole country mobilized and had an answer for it. Massive investment in studies of regions of the world, in science and technology education, putting a man on the moon, which threw off massive scientific uh, benefits in all directions. Right? So these are the kinds of things that we learned that we're not learning or we've unlearned right now vis-a-vis -vis this big Iranian story. This is not to say that Iran is a country that is, is not to be worried about or anything. Right? I, I'm not trying to diminish any sense that Iran is against U.S. interests in many ways. But the issue is how we do smartly a Middle Eastern policy. We're very far from that right now. Very, very far, unfortunately. Are learning. I mean, FP, FPRI does a really good job on Middle Eastern stuff. They have a lot of events uh, that I see. You know, you probably see these too if you're on the mailing list. But the, the larger country is still enthralled to the so-called terrorism problem, the Iranian proxy war thing, and all the other stuff. Anyway, we got some. Any more questions? We're at 10:06. Al, uh, we have 10. We have yeah. 10? Okay. Sorry, my answers are not economical. <laughs> <laughs> we got these guys in the front have patiently been waiting. All right. Okay. All right. I'm Kimberly Kirstein from Northern New Jersey. Um, there was an op-ed in Eurasia Review at the beginning of September, and it was talking about um, should Aung San Suu Kyi be blamed for the Rohingya crisis. Um, and my question was, when you were talking about the hierarchy within Eurasia, do you feel um, that 
that she, the blame that she has been receiving or not. Do, do you think that that is based on uh, the, the wealth of her of her nation? Like, do you feel that she's being treated in the same way as she would if she was from a wealthier nation? What is your take on the blame that she's receiving? She's the leader of that country. She carries responsibility. What's happening there is wrong. She's got to step up and say that. I don't care wealthy country, poor country. Now, if it's politically delicate, if it's difficult, okay. We're counting on her to figure out how to master that delicacy, how to say it in a way that's not destabilizing, that doesn't push the whole country back to a worse place than it is now. I feel she's capable enough, intelligent enough, to figure out the delicacy part and to get it done. The fact that she hasn't, I think, is a big problem. Uh, I think this is not just about her. There are other leaders in that country who also said nothing. We happen to know her better. She won big prize, and she's a world figure, which adds even additional responsibility to her, in my view. Right? Now, in her shoes, it's not as easy as it is in our shoes. Right? We can sit in a room here in a hotel in Philadelphia, and we can say what we want, and nobody with um, ski masks and riot gear are going to burst through those doors. And that's a really big difference. And if you've ever lived in a police state or you've ever lived in a state where the military or the secret police are a dominant force, even if there's elements of democracy, like in Burma today, if you've ever lived under a situation like that, you don't take lightly the difficulty of this. So I, I'm not making it look like you know, she's got it easy. Uh, but I, I do believe the disappointment is understandable. Okay, who's next? I'm Brenda Bowler. I teach in Tucson, Arizona. I guess I was a little surprised to hear you say empire empowers locals. Yes. Um, and that kind of, um, to me, goes against um, how the presentation of imperialism as an oppressive force culturally, politically, and economically to local populations. Yes, yeah, so imperialism is opportunity. I could give you many examples of the opportunity that imperialism gives you. So the Japanese oppressed the Koreans in Korea, on the Korean Peninsula. Right? They forced them to learn Japanese, take Japanese names, they prohibited uh, Korean culture, etc. Then what happened? The Japanese needed to rule Manchuria. And guess who went to rule Manchuria on behalf of the Japanese Empire? Ethnic Koreans, Korean nationals. So the Korean nationals were oppressed on the peninsula and then empowered to run Manchuria on behalf of the Japanese. So that's empowerment. That's opportunity. We could talk about the Scots and the Irish, how they're oppressed in the British Isles, and then they go run India. There's massive opportunity inside imperialism. I could give example after example. The point I was making about empowering locals is there are local differences of opinion, struggles for power, different factions, different families, different tribes. And we, our understanding of empire is that they divide and rule. They go in there and then they arrange everything so that everybody hates each other. Well, that's one way to look at it. I think that's mostly a fantasy that empire was that sophisticated. Empire is not that sophisticated and it doesn't have that kind of reach into localities. 
What Empire does is it, it sends an emissary out to a locality. That emissary says, you know, who's going to be the most loyal to us? Figures out who's going to be the most loyal or guesses who's going to be the most loyal and then empowers that one group against all the other groups. And that one group then rises up and exercises tremendous power because the empire is far away and that group is right there. Yeah, and though we call those people compradore elites or collaborators. We have all sorts of negative vocabulary for them. I, I'm not trying to make this a positive story. Once again, you know, I, I, this, I'm not political. I'm not ideological. But you then see, in many cases, these groups exercising day-to-day power on a vast scale in their region locally. That's what empire is. That's the part of empire we don't see. There are many parts of empire. There's the the nookie part, right? What I mean is that the imperial uh, official goes in and doesn't know the local language, organizes a harem, has liaison with women, produces mestizo children, and that woman and those children become the cultural brokers between the imperial power and the local population. And it's not just a family story, but because they're the ones that speak both languages. And they're the ones who have access to power and access to the local culture. So you see these women who are in, you know, in harems as concubines in imperial settings exercising very significant power locally because they're the ones who can talk to the governor, the governor general, whoever it might be, that they had the liaison and the mestizo kids with. So you can say, well, geez, that's very unequal. The woman may have been forced into that relationship, all of which is true. In some cases, it was involuntary. Right? I get that. But then, look, it, it's not just involuntary. It's not just oppression. It's not only the understanding of imperialism that we have. That's all I'm saying. There's also moments of opportunity, and some people can seize that opportunity and exercise power, That's what happens locally. Empires have direct rule on paper. But then you look at the archives. Who made the decisions? Who controls the resources? Who banished this family and banished that family? Who took over the property? It's local officials empowered in the imperial structure. In exchange for their loyalty, they get to exercise a lot of power. And sometimes they're minorities. This is what the British did a lot. This is what the Iraq story is. Saddam Hussein was part of a minority. The Alawites in Syria, minority regime. The Jordanian monarchy. This is not a majoritarian group. So in a lot of cases in empire, the locals on the bottom end of the totem pole are the ones who rise up in the imperial setting. Anyway, I could give more detail on that, but I'm afraid I'm already eating up everybody's time. I got 10.14. Yeah, I think we're out of time. So let me thank you very much.